Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. You've heard of nuclear fission, right? It's the basic process by which nuclear bombs and nuclear reactors operate. It involves splitting a material into smaller pieces, which releases energy in the process. If you control this splitting apart, then you create a nuclear reactor. If you want all of the splitting apart energy to be produced at one time, you create an atomic bomb. The other type of reaction is called nuclear fusion, which, as the name implies, is taking two different materials and putting them together in such a way that releases energy and creates a new single thing out of them, rather than splitting a thing up into separate other pieces. It's much harder to generate. It's much harder to control. That's why so far what we have is weapons only. They're called thermonuclear weapons, or H-bombs. And nobody has really figured out how to do it in a controlled way to use it in a reactor. But we know it can be done because the sun works on the basis of nuclear fusion, turning hydrogen into helium, which is how we get helium for balloons on Earth. Just kidding, that last part's not true. Just making sure you're paying attention. But it obviously produces an enormous amount of energy because the entire sun is built on this one simple reaction of fusing hydrogen into helium. For years, scientists have been trying to find a way to do this because, theoretically, this would solve all of the energy problems you could ever imagine. If you had tiny, controlled nuclear fusion reactors, you could eliminate the need for coal, natural gas, solar, hydroelectric, wind power. If it could be done at a micro scale, you wouldn't need batteries anymore. I mean, really, that kind of potential. But so far, nobody's really succeeded. However, the United States government says they want to put a nuclear fusion reactor into space with a private company in an operational prototype by 2027. And given the amount of money at stake, there's a lot of people that are eager to try this. One company is called Avalanche Energy, and they think they've got a solution with a very small reactor called the Orbitron, which works by trapping high-speed ions in a teeny tiny little orbit around a negatively charged electrode, and by creating a small space for this ion plasma called an ion trap, the engineers at Avalanche think they raise the chances of them crossing paths and fusing. If this works, it's going to be very expensive to start, but they believe that over time they might be able to satisfy the 2027 goal and in the process have created a teeny tiny cell-like basis for nuclear fusion reactors that could be small enough to operate a plane or a car and certainly scalable up in order to produce the kind of energy that a reactor that would power a city might demand. And if any of this turns out, you're talking about solving the energy problems here on the planet. You're talking about carbon-free energy. You're also talking about producing the kind of energy that it might take to make humans a space-faring society. And as one of the founders at Avalanche says, I just want to make science fiction real, which in and of itself is a pretty noble goal. And now from the, and how do I fix that file? I suppose that anybody who's had interactions with the Internal Revenue Service has a story to tell about how well or poorly it went or how difficult or easy it was. But most likely, your story isn't quite as bad as that of Jeanette Carpenter. In 2020, she filed her taxes and she got a letter back from the IRS that said, we cannot fulfill your request because you're deceased. That's right. Her social security number belongs to a deceased person. 
according to the IRS. And even after she had her accountant refile the tax form two more times, they came back with the same answer. And what she initially thought was that perhaps they'd been getting her confused with her husband and his social security number. He had passed away in 2009. And they said, no, it's you who's dead. And she says what actually baffles her the most about all of this is that she works for the government. I would think that would reinforce her belief that this is possible. She's tried to get a hold of the IRS over the phone, placed on hold a long time, and then eventually got hung up on. No ability to solve this problem. It does remind me just a little bit of that one MASH episode where Hawkeye had been declared dead and tries to fix the error, meanwhile worrying greatly that his dad back home had learned the news and didn't know the truth that he was still alive. But to me, this is a relatively easy fix. This is why you have a congressman. You call your congressman and you say, here's a problem I'm having with the federal government, and they will fix it. They actually love to fix this kind of stuff because it's well within their domain of power, and they can feel valiant like they did something for a constituent. It's exactly the kind of thing that congressmen love. But if she's not willing to call her congressman, in the meantime, she could just start daily sending the IRS copies of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Bring out your dead I'm not dead. Who knows? Maybe they have a sense of humor at the IRS, contrary to reports. And finally, in what I can only describe as one of the weirdest, most interesting research stories I've read recently, I take you to the Wiseman Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel, on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, where Invil Raverby is building a reputation as the gal who understands B.O. really well. As part of the Brain Sciences Department at the Institute, Raverby's research was to see if there was any merit to the idea that people prefer to be around other people who smell like they do. She was going on the premise that people like to be around other people who look like them and sound like them and have similar interests, and she wondered whether smell might be one of those factors. What we already know is that people do constantly, often subconsciously, smell themselves, and that people, again, often subconsciously, smell other people. So what she wanted to find out was whether other people prefer to make friends with those who smell like they do. So she recruited pairs of people who were what she calls click friends, same-sex, non-romantic friends whose friendship had formed very rapidly, not over a long period of time and common encounters, but looking for fast friendships, one that were almost kind of faster than you would normally expect. She then collected body odor samples from those click friends and also collected samples from random pairs of individuals who didn't know each other at all. And here's where things get a little bit interesting. Her first test used a thing called the e-nose. That's right, a device designed to smell and identify whether smells are similar to other smells. I've looked at it. It looks like a small blue microwave with an air tube coming out that goes, at least in the picture I'm looking at, into a large mason jar packed full of T-shirts from a particular person. It's the smellometer. And according to the E-nose, the pairs that were actual friends, click friends, had similar body odor, whereas the random pairs showed no similarity whatsoever. She ran that same experiment, by the way, with actual people who were given body odor samples to smell. This part sounds super gross to me. And then asked whether these smelled like those or smelled unlike the others. And the same research conclusions came up that the people who formed fast friendships smelled alike. The other pairs, no similarity. And since this is science, we're trying to rule out that there might be some common cause to the similar smell. For example, friends with similar interests might like the same kind of food and therefore produce the same kind of body odor, theoretically. So she actually ran a friend-making experiment using the e-nose to smell a number of volunteers and identify what kind of odor they emit, and then had them engage in nonverbal social interaction in pairs, a kind of silent speed dating, if you will and asked them how much they liked the other people and how much they'd want to become friends with them. And 
you guessed it, the people who smell alike are much more likely to express a strong interest in becoming friends with the other person after only a short interaction. How much of a predictive factor is similar smell? 71% accuracy. The Enos could tell with a group of strangers who had never met, with 71% accuracy, which ones were likely to want to couple up as friends and which ones were not. Now, aside from the just plain fascinating results of this research, I think it starts to raise serious questions about some of our common practices like use of perfume or use of cologne or even use of deodorant, for example. Things which dramatically change how we smell, typically we think in a good way, but what if all that's doing is really confusing our bodies through our noses and making us want to become friends with or be romantically involved with people that we really don't want to be with long term because of the way they smell? What if you'd be much better off just being able to smell consciously or unconsciously other people and let your nose do the work? I suppose in the end, we ought to add a corollary to the age-old advice that you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. Now we know that your nose can pick your friends. That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. And consider subscribing to the digital and print editions of Newsweek. If you haven't already, hit the five-star review before you go. I appreciate it. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.